Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I just spoke to Joe November about his new book, Biomedical Computing, Digitizing Life in the United States. This was a book that was published in 2012 with the Johns Hopkins University Press. Now, this book is extraordinarily accessible, but also really, really informative, regardless of what your background is and regardless of whether you have a specialty or maybe an academic expertise in computing, in biomedicine, or whether you're just someone who's interested in knowing more about the history of science and or knowing more about the kinds of technologies that are letting you listen to me right now. One of the goals of the book is to map out the early years in which computers were first introduced to biology and medicine. And this was happening from about the 1950s, so about 1955 to 1965. Although these are the years of focus for the book, the story really extends back to the 1940s, as you'll see over the course of our conversation, and also extends forward into our contemporary world, as you'll also hear um, from Joe and my discussion as we talk about the modern ramifications or the contemporary ramifications and after effects of the kind of historical developments that he talks about and that he describes in the 50s and the 1960s. So in many ways, it's not just a history, but it also provides a historical foundation for understanding contemporary biomedicine and contemporary computing and showing how they really shaped each other over the course of this history. In addition to this, there's also a subtle companion thread running through the book that looks at the ways that the objects of biomedicine, so and, and by that I mean the things that are being studied, the entities of um, the life sciences, are also transforming as a result of the increasing a number of kinds of technologies and kinds of computing technologies that are being brought into these fields. And so what it looks like to conceive an entity of study, be it a pigeon or a cat or a, a sound, um, a human body in this period, really is is transforming along with the technology into a way of thinking about life as mathematicized, as increasingly standardized as something that can be measured and um, put into computer terms in a way that I think is really fascinating. So there's a really interesting historical epistemology going on in this story as well in a a nice, um, subtle, but really important way. Now, over the course of our conversation, um, we were lucky enough to happen, uh, we happened to have scheduled this at a time that not only was there a, a really wonderfully um, exciting and boisterous set of lunchtime conversations going on right outside my door, but also there is this beautiful thunderstorm happening at the same time. So I ask you to imagine that we're all, you and me and Joe, sitting in a kind of canopy-covered area out in the woods, surrounded by people who are enjoying what they're doing, who are loving their job, who are excited about doing humanistic scholarship in the midst of this really beautiful, um, warm, and really uh, green-smelling thunderstorm and rain that's happening all around us. So with that, um, I invite you to join me um, as we walk into this rainstorm, this really um, party-infused rainstorm, and enjoy the conversation that's about to ensue. Thank you. We're here today to talk with Joseph November about his new book, Biomedical Computing, Digitizing Life in the United States. Welcome to New Books and STS, Joe, and thank you so much for making time at this really busy time at the end of the semester to talk with me. Thanks for having me, Carla. Of course. So, Joe, can you start us off by saying a little bit about what's perhaps a a really broad question, but you can approach it any way you like. What brought you to the field of the history of science and technology? Gosh, well, I've always been interested um, in history and and technology and science as well. And so what this is is basically a convergence of my interests. I was a history major as an undergraduate, but didn't know about history of science or history of technology. Um, At the same time, I'd been working a lot um, with computers, and um, I'd done a lot of uh, biology undergraduate training. Um, I, after college, had a bunch of programming jobs, and one of them I wound up um, doing programming in a genetics lab. 
And I became very interested in the history of how things got to the way they were when I was in the lab. And, well, one thing led to another, and I encountered history of science, and I found a way to bring together uh, my passion for history um, with my interest and expertise in um, computing and in biology. That's great. And that's actually really interesting because it speaks to not just, um, as you just mentioned, the topic of the book we're talking about today, but also the other really large um, issue that comes up in the book, which is the importance of and the relevance of understanding this history that you're showing us in the book to contemporary practices of computing and biomedical computing and personal computing right now. And so this is um, this is a great way actually to open up some themes that are, I think, going to be, continue to be important for the rest of our conversation. So the book that we're talking about explores the process by which electronic digital computers became integrated and integrated more and more into research in biology and in medicine in the 1950s and 1960s in the U.S. So how did you come? You've said a little bit about how you came to an interest in um, the intersection between the life sciences and computing, but how did you come to this particular set of topics and decide to focus on this particular period in the yeah. history of computing and biomedicine? Oh, that's a great question. Um, initially, I'd been interested in pretty much strictly how computers had changed biology and medicine, um, but as I was preparing to get into that topic, I came across what I thought was something even more interesting, which was the question of how computers got there in the first place. And so to do that, I had to look at the time when they did first enter the field, which happened to be around the time that computers themselves were developed in the, in the 1950s especially. Mm-hmm. Great. So this started out actually as a dissertation, yeah? Yes, it did. Yes, and, and we and I knew it a, a little bit in bits and pieces um, when it was a dissertation, and it's so wonderful to see it um, in this in this amazing form that we're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about that transition from dissertation to book? Were there any oh, major sure. transformations? Anything um, notable about the process that you'd like to share? Yeah, I ended up doing more or less a complete rewrite of, of the dissertation to make it into um, a form that would be accessible um, to more than just a committee of, of a few people. Um, and that meant overhauling the narrative in such a way that it could connect um, the people that were interested in these areas but didn't, say, have the training um, to know all the terminology going into something like this. Um, I also... Um, was coached by the Johns Hopkins University press people, especially my editor, Bob Brueger, um, to format the book in such a way um, that it made for engaging, um, maybe even entertaining reading. Um, I don't know if I pulled off the entertaining part, um, but I certainly, you know, looking back at the dissertation, um, the book is a lot more accessible to a broader audience. That's right. And I think one of the really striking things about the book, about the narrative and the writing style, is that you don't have to be a specialist in um, the history of computing, the history of biomedicine, or really the history of science at all in order to follow the story and get a lot out of the story. Now, how does the story that you're telling here and how does your approach to this narrative differ, um, or if you think it does significantly differ, from other and more popular accounts of the history of computers and the life sciences? Yeah, well, there aren't that many other popular accounts of this stuff. I mean, this is um, work that doesn't have much to compete with it, either on the scholarly level um, or the popular level. Um, There's just not much out there. Um, It hasn't received attention the way computers and, say, physics um, or, you know, computers that enter the, you know, the home have. Um, One thing that does set it apart from some other scholarly accounts um, about this is that I emphasize that it's not just a one-way process of computers changing biology and medicine, but it's also, it, it shows how biology and medicine changed computing. Um, which is one of the things that I found most interesting uh, while putting this thing together. That's right. And I I think another one of the things that's um, really striking and that you emphasize in a way that's really successful in the book is that this wasn't at all a kind of inevitable process. This wasn't an unproblematic process. And you show that how you show the, the 
processes and the really the texture of the ways that the history of decision making and kinds of collaborations among the different actors that are responsible for bringing about this history were fraught, were, were contested and were really fraught. And it's a really interesting window into what's actually a very uh, problem of fraught history and a very contested history in, in, in the same way, in a way that I think um, we, people without a background in this field may not otherwise be aware of. Yeah. Um, one of the sort of conventional wisdoms that I was going up against while writing this, which you do see in journalistic accounts, um, is this idea that um, Moore's Law, you know, this notion that computers keep getting cheaper and cheaper um, with every passing generation, each generation is only a couple of years, um, that that has itself created an environment where these changes do seem to be inevitable. And you know, it's, a, it's an elegant explanation of what's going on, but if you stick with it too closely, um, you miss out on all the intellectual and the institutional decisions um, that are made that really did have an impact on this process of computerizing the life sciences and medicine. That's right. Thanks, Joe. Now, one of uh, the kinds of approaches that um, allow us insight into these competing ad- competing interests into these uh, into the texture, as I mentioned before, of these decisions, is the idea of agendas. So one of the analytic frames of the book is this notion of the agendas that different individuals, different institutions, different groups that are all part of this story have in shaping what develops. And you're very clear here um, in stating that one of the book's goals is to explore the many agendas of computing. Can you talk a little bit for us about that approach and the emphasis on agendas and competing agendas as an analytic frame as a way to get us into the body of the book? Yeah, this is a framework that I borrow heavily from um, Michael Mahoney, uh, my late uh, dissertation advisor, um, who is a historian of mathematics and a historian of computing. And he proposed that computers, they're not used the same way by any two people or two groups of people. And the motivations for bringing them into one's institution or one's life also is different from institution to institution and from individual to individual. And each group, therefore, has their own agenda, um, which if you follow these agendas, it is very fruitful, as opposed to just saying, well, no computers could solve some general problem of doing mathematical problems quickly, or um, they became cheaper than human labor to do it. Mm-hmm. Instead, it shows that in each case, um, there is a unique um, interplay between different interests on the one hand and different, um, well, I, I guess, resources on the other. Um, and one outcome of this is that there's an enormous amount of diversity of um, different kinds of computers um, in the 1950s and the 1960s. Each of these tends to satisfy one particular agenda. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you, um, the story proceeds, and I'm, and I'm sorry if you can hear the general humanistic laughing and um, merriment that's being made. As long <laughs> as they're laughing with me. us and not at us, it's good. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're finding what we're saying incredibly brilliant and amusing, yep. and, and that's why they're, they're laughing. Uh, the National Humanities Center is a very fun place to work. But I digress. So one of the things that you do here is, although the story really focuses on what's happening in the 1950s and the 1960s, you're showing this transformation in what it meant to talk about computers, what a computer was um, from the 1940s all the way really through today. So in the in this early part of the story in the 1940s, what a computer was, and I, I have my little fingers up using scare quotes. You can't see me. That's what's happening. Computers um, like, for example, ENIAC, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer um, that was built at UPenn in the early 1940s, it's like 1,800 square feet of space. It consumes, and you you tell us in the book that when it's running, it consumes enough power to power 50 modern homes um, to the IBM 650 in the 40s, which is housed in a space that quote, is deemed unsatisfactory for human occupancy. And so you start out with these really wonderful stories of um, really the changing technological, physical, and material and conceptual um, being of the computer as entity over the course of this history. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, these early electronic computers, I mean, they're enormous. They're the size of buildings. Um, and then when they were smaller ones, like the 650, they were merely the size of large rooms. Um, one distinction that um, is important to make is that people, when they were talking about these contraptions, often did not refer to them as just computers. They would say something like electronic computers or calculating machines. Um, as late as the early 1960s, computers were people, which um, you know, human beings that had as a job um, to do arithmetic and, and calculations. Um, usually this was a pretty dull line of work, and it's one where one had to pay very close attention to detail and not make mistakes frequently, because if you made one mistake early on in, say, jotting something down or in your um, arithmetic in your head, that could mess up um, work down the line and, and end up ruining hundreds and hundreds of hours of work. Um, typically, this was a job that was held by women um, in the 1940s and the 1950s. So ENIAC, for instance, replaced a bunch of female human computers that were working um, at a detachment of the ballistics research laboratory um, at UPenn. Um, and some of the ones I talk about in the book, um, EDSAC at, at Cambridge replaced a... Um, basically a building full of female computers that were doing the same kind of uh, projects. And this, in turn, led to some very drastic changes in the, um, the way people in the laboratories worked, that there had been a sort of pool of eligible young women that were around um, on campus that was then replaced by um, a machine. And that had, of course, all kinds of effects on, say, the morale of the young men that were working in the laboratories. Now, as we move into the first chapter and you're showing us the transformation of uh, what, what happens from the 1940s as we get into the 1950s in terms of computing machines, uh, we get to chapter one. So chapter one looks at the early efforts to use computers in biology and medicine specifically starting in the late 1940s. This chapter focuses on a really interesting setting in which operations research, which is, as you show us in the book, a collection of mathematical methods which was initially used in the context of World War II, this functions as the main conduit by which computers enter biology and medicine. So can you talk a little bit about operations operations research. What is operations research and how does its military or, uh, origins actually shape um, how computing gets introduced to biology and medicine in this early period? Okay. All right. Operations research. Um, this is something that emerges in Britain initially, um, right at the beginning of World War II. And it was a constellation of statistical methods and creating simulations that was used to develop and then test um, and actually then deploy uh, the early radar system that was used in Britain at the very beginning of the war. Um, these methods were found to be very effective in doing things like planning, planning bombing raids and you know, figuring out what configuration of submarines you should use to patrol um, various parts of the ocean that you think you could find enemy ships in. Um, it was all about optimization, and it grows out of an older um, theory called Taylorism, you know, the idea that there's a one best way uh, of doing things. Um, people who got good at this later, at the very end of the war and after the war, tended to be drawn towards um, computers. The, the act of translating something that you're observing um, out in the world into numbers is important for doing the optimization work of operations research. And it's also important for getting information from that messy, buzzing world um, into a machine that strictly deals with logic and numbers. So there's people with this background coming into computing, and some of them, including the ones I talked in the book, also had gone into operations research, already interested in biology and in medicine, and had always been kind of harboring uh, these notions of putting operations research to work for those fields. That's right. And so as you, um, right after you introduce this larger context of operations research in this first chapter, you bring us into the contexts in the UK and in the US in which 
practitioners of the life sciences broadly conceived are getting interested in not just how to integrate operations research into the way they're thinking about their topics, but also how this actually acts as a bridge for starting to bring computing into their fields. So Mm -hmm. one of the contexts you talk about is um, crystallography in Britain and also uh, sort of early studies in Britain of the conversion of DNA's information into proteins mm-hmm. through RNA. So would you um, speak a little bit about these early contexts of crystallography and yep. RNA synthesis and how what's going on there and how does that get us to an interest in computing? Yeah. Um, so the very first computer users in the life sciences were crystallographers. And the the point man on this was John Kendrew, who was an operations researcher during World War II. Um, he had been, during the war, in charge of planning out bombing raids and um, otherwise optimizing things like fleet configurations. He, after the war, wanted to take this expertise and this, he had a real knack for it, uh, this, this organizational skill, and apply it to complex problems in um, crystallography. And in particular, he was interested in using crystallography to figure out the 3D structure, you know, the configuration of um, atoms within molecules like hemoglobin. Um, to do that involves thousands, no, actually millions and millions of little tiny uh, simple equations that you have to absolutely get right each time. And he found a way of dividing up this labor in such a way that you could get a computer, a, that is an electronic computer, the kinds of computers that we call computers, to do this instead of um, farming it out to buildings full of human computers. Um, that's crystallography. Um, Kendrew worked down the hall um, in the same lab that Watson and Crick were working in um, when they were uh, trying to figure out um, how genes and proteins worked and what DNA was. And um, there was some cross-pollination there, but also in the United States, there were people that were very receptive to Watson and Crick, um, this notion that you could treat DNA like some sort of code-carrying entity. And... They were hoping that you could do things with, well, the sorts of codes one puts into computers, compare them to the kinds of codes one finds um, in DNA. Many of these things kind of dead-ended, but that thinking was very influential later in the 60s, 70s, and even down the line. And I'll mention for listeners that I'm not going to um, – we'll, we'll maybe leave this as a tantalizing um, hint or clue that you'll have to go to the book to find out. But I will mention for listeners that there's this wonderful account of the RNA tie club as a necktie um, mm-hmm. that I, I want to direct um, listeners to in this chapter because it's really fascinating and really kind of funny, actually. So yeah, they, were, they were a fun bunch, and, and <laughs> even when they were sober, too, which is about half the time. <laughs> Now, one of the other figures that emerges in this chapter that's going to go on to be really important to this story is a young computer expert for the U.S. named Robert Ledley, who actually got his start um, in dentistry school. That's correct. Part. So can you talk a little bit about him and where he comes into this story? So Ledley is, Ledley is another operations researcher, but he he's a bit younger than Kendrew, so he was just a teenager um, during World War II. Um, he grew up wanting to be a physicist, but his parents told him that there was no way he could make a living being a physicist and that he would have to get a practical job as well. And so he continued the family tradition of dentistry. Um, The deal was the family would support him through getting his physics degree um, if he also agreed to get a a dental school degree at the same time. So he concurrently trained um, in physics on the graduate level, while also going through dental school. He did both of these in New York. He did physics at Columbia, and he went to the NYU Dental School. Um, At the end of, I guess it was 1950, um, he was just winding up what was going to be his Ph.D. in physics when he got drafted into the military uh, because the Korean War was starting up. And... They gave him a choice. He could either be drafted as an infantryman or volunteer in the dental corps and be a lieutenant. So he volunteered um, and through the military ended up being able to sort of follow both of his passions. He built 
dental simulations that he used physics equations to develop. And he got exposed to computers because his wife had a job um, programming computers at the National Bureau of Standards. And um, one day she brought home the paper tapes that they were using to keep programs on, and he had to look at them and recognize right away that this would be something that he liked and would be good at, and you know, used her to get his foot in the door. And one thing led to another, and he soon became much more a computer user than someone that was just doing dental simulations. This, in turn, got him connected with his RNA tie club. Um, there was more operations researchers in there um, who... We're interested in finding, say, the one best way of figuring out how um, DNA would make proteins. And before he knew it, he was United States' leading authority on how to use computers in um, biology and in medicine. And this is actually, um, this brings us to a really interesting point of the next chapter. Um, so you, we, as we move from the first to the second chapter, um, we move into a, a really detailed look at the ways that um, in American biomedical research, the first efforts to integrate computing into that work were being done. So this is happening at the National Institutes of Health in the 1950s, in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And one of the figures that is really important to this chapter is this Ledley that we've been talking about. Right. Now, one of the really interesting things that's happening here is that, as you mentioned, he's sort of um, revising the way biologists, or trying to revise the way biologists work. And in particular, um, and specifically, he is calling for a revision um, at, at least, you know, in part of this chapter, right. in the way biology curricula are put, to, put together and in the yes. training of biologists. So can you speak a little bit to this and yep. its kind of broader context and efforts to mathematize yep. um, biomedicine? He and the people that were sympathetic to him were, they firmly subscribed to the belief that you could bring about vast improvements in biology and in medicine if you harnessed the power of computers um, in, in the process of doing research. And they compared, uh, say, you know, the use of computers in developing rocketry and, and, and nuclear weapons to what they could be used to for advances in healthcare and agriculture. Um, the problem that they encountered, though, was that there were not many people that knew much about computers that knew anything about biology, and there were very few biologists or physicians that knew much about computers. And he sought to correct this by introducing both of these things um, at an earlier level. Ledley believed that it would be important to start people off at a very young age to learn about both computing and biology in order for them to be productive down the line. So not only was he proposing changes to um, college and graduate school curricula, that is, he hoped that all biology majors would take a, um, a course in computer programming and another course in electrical engineering so that you could program and then build these things if you had to, to suit your experiments. But that earlier on, they would take courses in logic and mathematics and even in the scientific method um, so that they would be ready to handle this kind of work when they got to the college level. That there's this perception then, and you kind of find it now, that um, if you're not good at math, um, you end up taking something like biology instead of chemistry or physics. Um, and he was trying to go about changing that around so that you would have people that would know a lot about biology but also could do math really well and knew about engineering and um, computing, too. Mm -hmm. This, by the way, didn't work out. I mean, he he um, talked a lot about imposing these reforms, but there were very few universities or and certainly um, K-12 through school systems that um, changed anything um, based on his advice. And why do you think that is? Um, I think a lot of it was just institutional momentum, um, that they've been doing things um, a certain way for a long time, and it would be very difficult to overhaul them. The other thing was that um, the payoff didn't seem to be that great, that you'd have to invest a lot of energy into um, – familiarizing yourself uh, with something completely alien, like electronic engineering. Um, and 
you know, would that really lead to anything productive down the line? He wasn't able to make a case that um, this would necessarily be true. Computers were not a big part of that society um, the way they are in ours. So it wasn't just obvious to people that this would be a fruitful thing. Now, in this chapter also, um, an issue gets raised that we're going to see developed in, in greater length um, and in greater detail later in our conversation and later in the book, which is the ways that computing might be um, called upon to help in diagnostic medicine. So mm-hmm. can you speak a little bit to that as it emerges early in this story? Um, Ledley, in order to get physicians excited about the use of computers in um, diagnosis, built a little contraption that he called a metal brain for diagnosis, um, which was a push-button device where you, the user, would punch in the symptoms that you observed in the patient, and then this device, which was hardwired to uh, correlate certain symptoms with certain diseases, would have the logic built in to tell the user um, what disease was causing those symptoms. And the idea is that this would save a lot of labor on the part of physicians and would prevent all kinds of mistakes. Physicians are people too, and um, they make mistakes when they might know something, but they may not remember which symptoms correspond to which disease. And so this thing, I mean, I, I, he, he, Ledley and I rescued it one evening from the basement of Georgetown University, and we, I took it to the NIH Festival of the Sciences, which is this big annual kind of poster fair where each of the institutes has people showing off what they're doing. So the history office, um, I, I brought in this thing and let people play with it. And there were two very different receptions to it. Um, on the one hand, um, you know, the guys that were running the parking lot, you know, the parking lot attendants loved it. They were punching in diseases and, you know, coming up with diagnoses and demanding $300 for their services. Hey, <laughs> um, I'm a doctor, too. On the other hand, many physicians were quite offended by the thing. They, even, even after I told them I'm just showing them the device, I'm not saying this is the way medicine ought to be done and it's just an interesting artifact, um, that, that there were problems in the logic of the machine, that it didn't take into account comorbidity, that the choices that it offered weren't real choices, that they weren't necessarily um, real dichotomies, um, and that it, there were all sorts of issues with it, and do you really want to be told by a machine after punching in a bunch of things that you have some awful disease? Um, so they were quite hostile to it. Um, and to me, that was quite telling. And there was indeed a lot of resistance um, to this notion of using machines to do diagnosis in the 50s, right on up through today. Now, as we, um, I, I, the phrase right on up to today actually perfectly brings me to um, questions that I have for you on the next chapter. Um, but before we get to that, I just want to briefly mention for listeners that although we won't have time to talk too much about this, Chapter 2 also has a really nice discussion and a really nice treatment of the ways that military sponsorship, um, which was really important, shaped early research in the field. And for historians of science, there's a shout-out to ISIS. Um, at, I guess. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, and there's a, this great um, moment where another one of the central figures in this story, Lusted, actually reads an issue of ISIS, from, um, that, which is for non-historians of science. This is the Journal of the His- History of Science Society, and he reads an issue from June 1961, and it transforms the way he thinks about computerization mm-hmm. um, and the life sciences. So yay, history of science. Yeah, I just love that people actually read our stuff, and in this case, it has an impact on actual policy. I know. I loved that, too. That, that was a really nice moment in the story. I hope for more of that. <laughs> so as we move into the third chapter, um, we meet a character in this story that's going to continue to be really important for your narrative and actually continues to be important in some ways today, um, and that is the link um, or the link instrument or the laboratory instrument computer, which was about refrigerator size, as you describe mm-hmm. here. Very small. Exactly. It's pretty small. Um, and you, Chapter 3 closely follows the development of this technology from 1961 to 1965. So mm-hmm. you're arguing ultimately in this chapter that Link was a really important but often overlooked precursor to the modern personal computer. Right. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what Link was um, for, yeah. for listeners who may not be familiar with this? 
And in what ways this actually for you um, is an important um, precursor to modern personal computing? This is one of the very pleasant surprises as I was doing this research. Um, in, in sort of popular discussion, and we hear a lot about people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, and you can read their biographies, and now they're making a movie um, out of Steve Jobs, and you'll see in there that they steal these ideas from Xerox, um, which could have been the big computing power. And one of the questions that's left unanswered by that is, is where Xerox got these ideas of graphical user interfaces and, and personal computers from. And the answer to that, and the people at, at Xerox Park and later at Apple, like, like Alan Kay, for instance, um, say that this ultimately comes from the LINK, the Laboratory Instrument Computer, which was built at MIT's Lincoln Lab. That's where the initial name comes from um, in the, the early 1960s. Um, the LINK was one of these things that you know, was not inevitable by any means. Um, there had been an effort in the very early 60s to get biologists to use the, the big room-sized computers. And despite building these facilities for biologists at the cost of uh, tens of millions of dollars, they weren't using them. Um, there was a problem to get data from the lab over to the computing center and to deal with um, various middlemen in, in, in the process. And that you couldn't when you had everything punched up on cards, change the parameters of your program um, the way one could um, using things like personal computers. That capability wasn't there. So at Lincoln Lab, there was a guy named Wesley Clark, no relation to the general and politician of, of the same name, um, who took it upon himself um, while looking around for kind of a way to explore some of his own ideas about how to best use computers um, to you know, give the real-time computing experience that he had as an operator of Whirlwind, which is another one of these building-sized things that was supposed to be a flight simulator but ended up having a limited capability of doing things that we take for granted, like typing a letter on a keyboard and having it appear on the screen and then being able to delete it by hitting a different key. It took a building full of equipment to be able to, to do that. Um, he wanted to make that experience accessible to large numbers of people, and he needed demand for it, and no one was really demanding it except for biologists who wanted a computer that they could use without knowing much about computing before, and it would let them adjust things in real time as they worked. So, for instance, if they had a cat hooked up to a bunch of electrodes, it was then hooked up to um, the computer, and the cat started purring, um, and that wasn't in the program, they wanted to be able to um, adjust it right on the spot instead of having to go over to the computing center and redo a whole bunch of cards and ruin a couple of days' worth of work. Um, and, and they really did use cats for these things, by the way. Um, they were testing how hearing works, and there were cats that had electrodes attached to their brains, and um, the computer was very good at reading these signals. Um, he used these biology experiments as a way to test out the prototypes for the link which was a machine that was small enough to put right into the laboratory, simple enough to use um, by people that didn't know much about computing, and it was cheap enough to buy. Um, it was just $50,000 in, in their money, so like a couple hundred thousand in our terms, um, without too much trouble from one's institutional bosses. Um, problem with this, though, was it would be less powerful than the big computers, but he thought that that would be a sacrifice users were willing to make, and it turned out that they were. Um, MIT was not receptive to this project, and nor were the sponsors in the military of the work at MIT, um, so he ended up getting exiled um, from MIT in 1964 um, and was adopted by Washington University in St. Louis. And the people that brought him into Washington University were the same people that ended up setting up Xerox Park in the 1970s. And they brought some of his ideas over with them. Wow. So there's so, a nice transition all the way through. So the, this link, actually, even though it started at this one particular Lincoln mm -hmm. Lab at MIT, you mm -hmm. have an entire chapter that shows the way... Mm -hmm. um, 
the sort of the use and development of um, NIH-sponsored computers, the yes. li- especially Link, but also some others, in different contexts. So this is actually these these computers are being used and they're being changed and they're being developed um, in biomedical environments that have different kinds of needs. So laboratories versus hospitals versus um, the uh, something called the Robert Ledley's National Biomedical Research Foundation, right. which you discuss um, at great length here in this fourth chapter. So mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about um, about some of these. Um, okay, we'll start with the link. So initially there were just 12 links, and they each went out to um, laboratories and applied for using them. The labs got them for free in exchange for providing detailed reports of how they were used. And they were used for all kinds of things. Um, a lot of physiology work. Um, some people use them to look for amino acids on Mars. Um, um, another uh, researcher used them to try to communicate with dolphins. And um, these reports that they provided give us a nice window into the experiences of you know, first-time computer users and the kinds of changes that they had to make to their work in order to use the computers, but also the sorts of possibilities that computers opened up. Um, one thing that struck me as particularly interesting about this was that once a um, laboratory got a computer, it could never go back to not using a computer. And I kind of think that there's a parallel in our own lives to that. And once you get used to using a computer or a tablet for some sort of task, it is very difficult to go back. You know, Googling for something instead of using the yellow pages is an example that I like to use. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one set of things. Uh, the second set is, is computers and hospitals. And this was a very uh, challenging problem for the people at the NIH. Um, One problem was that the same people who were in charge of giving grants to people that were in biology labs who wanted computers um, were also in charge of giving grants to hospitals that wanted computers, even though biology labs and hospitals are very different from each other. Um, One is for experimenting on uh, fairly abstract things. The other, you know, there's an actual patient that often needs to be taken care of. So there ended up being very different problems faced by both of these groups. So it proved to be very challenging to get a computer working in the hospital just to do things like, you know, track billing or make a medical record that everyone could then use computers to comment on. And so... While a lot of money went into this, um, it is very revealing of the special ways in which hospitals work that are different from businesses or schools or labs that have made computerizing them not only a challenge in the 60s, but it's something that still hasn't really happened um, to the extent one would expect it would even today. They still use a lot of paper in these institutions. Now, one of the really um, fascinating parts of this story for me, and this is, um, if you hear thunder and lightning in the background, this I is, did hear I, I know, it's just another way of emphasizing um, how right your points are, I'm sure. This is not, now not just communities of humanists, but also the very weather that is chiming in to say, yes, Link is an important precursor that, that's to That's good to hear. It needs all the friends it can get. <laughs> but one of the really fascinating parts of this story that you talk about at the end of this chapter um, is the role of uh, the development of the first full-body CT or CAT right. scanner in this. Can you talk a little bit about yes. that? Because that's so, a really fascinating moment. Robert Ledley um, never really ended up guiding much directly at the NIH or other institutes um, in terms of shaping how money would be distributed to people who are using computers, mostly because he was too interested in wanting to just start doing this stuff himself, to actually develop computers and use them in research and in in medical care. So one of the projects that he had um, during the 1960s was to develop pattern recognition software and hardware. And this spawned a whole field called pattern recognition, which is now super important in the post-9-11 world of using computers to scan crowds for faces um, and to look for patterns in, in data traffic. This was all funded by one giant NIH grant, which was cut off um, when Nixon was reelected in 72. They had to make a bunch of federal budget cuts to cover the rising costs of the Vietnam conflict. Um, 
he was cut off from this funding and needed a project in order to feed all the people working at this um, nonprofit he'd established called the National Biomedical Research Foundation. And what he kind of settled on was this CT scanner that was developed in Britain uh, by a company called EMI um, that could do what CAT scanners do now but could only scan the head. Um, you had to shine the x-rays through water before they touched um, the head that they were then supposed to penetrate to let you see inside of. Um, Ledley found a new kind of algorithm to use that let him build a device that are the ancestors of the ones that we see in clinics all over the world today that are whole body CT scanners, these tube-like things um, that can scan the whole body. And this kept the organization that he was in on its feet um, for long enough to get more private funding. Um, he, for a little while, sold CT scanners, but found out quickly that he was not cut out to be a businessman um, and eventually used money by selling the patent to Pfizer um, to keep funding work in bioinformatics. Um, later, the organization pioneered um, something called the Protein Atlas, which was founded by Ledley's childhood friend and colleague at the National Biomedical Research Foundation, Margaret Dayhoff. And that became the basis of GenBank, um, which is still a major resource um, in molecular biology and genomics um, today. Great. Thank you, Joe. All kinds of twists and turns in that tale. <laughs> That's right, and there's also a great, um, uh, you know, we just mentioned cats, um, or you, you just mentioned cats come up as being important as part right. of this story, and I'll also mention for the for those who are interested in um, animals and the history of science, there's also a great account in this chapter of the ways that studies of operational conditioning were done on pigeons right. um, by psychologists at Duke and Brown, right, and how mm -hmm. that actually influences in these really surprising ways the development of um, computing in biomedicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but we'll, we've talked about cats a little bit. I just mentioned pigeons, and now we move to Martians um, at All the right. close of yes. our story. Mm -hmm. So Chapter 5, which is the last body chapter of the book before the conclusion, looks closely at the emergence of Stanford University as a really important space for the exchange of ideas among life scientists and computer scientists in the 1960s. Now, the chapter of this book, um, or this chapter of the book, argues that these two fields, the life sciences and the computer sciences, really shaped each other through several convergences. So it, again, as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, it wasn't just a one-way arrow of influence. It was also that the computing industry was being shaped by its engagement with the life sciences. And you show yeah. us how this is unfolding in particular mm -hmm. ways at Stanford University in this yeah. period. Now, these interests um, didn't always align perfectly, and so Stanford's rise as a center of biomedical computing, as you um, show us really nicely in this chapter, is actually marked by the loss of millions of dollars, the ruin of careers, and it's not yeah. entirely a success story. Oh, no. I mean, one, one is tempted to think that, um, you know, the, the people that are in this jump from success to success each time. Um, but the reality is that it was actually a very uncertain kind of area to work in. Um, George Forsyth, who I talk about a lot in this chapter, is the person who established the computer science department at Stanford. And he is widely regarded as one of the leading founders of computer science in general. He unfortunately found it very difficult to start using university funds to try to get biomedical computing going and spent two years of his life um, trying to get this project going and it getting pretty much nowhere. Um, later, the university attempted to do this again, but with Joshua Lederberg at the helm. Um, here come the Martians. Here come the Martians. Um, so Lederberg, he was very young when he got his Nobel Prize, something like 31, and was looking for a way to do more meaningful work. And since DNA had already been elucidated, he was trying to get at this deeper question of what life itself is and how it works. Um, not just life on Earth, but life everywhere. And that means that you have to find life elsewhere in order to, to do this stuff. And the target was Mars. Um, he led a group of very serious biochemists and molecular biologists and um, physicists 
to look at how life on Mars would work. And this is before they sent any space probes. So all they had were these ground-based um, telescope pictures, and they imagined that the dark splashes that they would see from time to time were vegetation and bloom because it was you know, the warm season, um, as opposed to what we think of them now as being dust storms. Um, so a very serious amount of work was put into trying to find um, ways to study life on Mars. If you couldn't go there, maybe you could look at it through um, uh, spectrometers um, to see how, say, amino acids on Mars worked versus the ones that um, were in Earth-like forms. Well, there was a lot of excitement about this until 1964 when the Mariner probe went by Mars and found that it was pretty much dead. Um, so they didn't have Martians to look at anymore, but they had these computer systems for doing a lot of the heavy lifting intellectually um, in terms of comparing sequence of um, spectrographic data to um, what we knew about amino acids to come up with conclusions you could make about the structures of things that could be used more generally to solve all kinds of problems um, that you may want to bring a computer to bear on, to replicate the expertise of specialists so that non-specialists could use a computer to augment their own intelligence and abilities. And you talk actually at the end of this chapter about the legacies of these expert systems in computing, which include kinds of programs that a lot of us, um, and I imagine a lot of the listeners use, I certainly use, including TurboTax. Right. Right? So these are distant descendants. I mean, TurboTax embodies the expertise of an expert um, tax accountant, and it takes all the stuff that define you, you, according to the IRS, to get you the best possible um, tax refund. Um, Things like Dendral, the the computer system that was used for studying life on Mars, took the expertise of someone who was very good at looking at spectrographic data and figuring out the the chemical, the configurations of chemicals. Um, And so the you can take this general problem-solving behavior, not just for Martian stuff, but map it onto all sorts of things, and one result is stuff like TurboTax. Now, you mention, um, again, at the end of this chapter, that uh, Dendral and also Acme, which you also talk about here, mm-hmm. both became victims of their own successes. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? So Dendral, people found all kinds of domains from doing other biomedical things, um, even some diagnosis work. Um, there was a system called Mycin in the 70s that was supposed to help people diagnose blood poisoning. Um, but there was some outcry over that because of this notion of computers making life and death decisions uh, about patients. Um, there were all kinds of opportunities for people that were working on Dendral to um, farm out their expertise to companies that wanted to build medical devices to embody the expertise of, say, pulmonologists into a spirometer to let um, non-specialists interpret um, the data that came out of these machines. And so what happened with Dendro was the people that built it had all kinds of opportunities and took them, founded companies and worked for them and kind of wandered away. Um, With ACME, so many people were using this computer system to do biomedical computing on campus that it proved to be too much for the system. So they had to come in and build a completely new one, one that was so big that the university by itself, despite being so rich, I mean, Stanford had a lot of money, would need federal support to build basically a national system called Sumex AIM, um, which is still around in the 90s, actually, Um, there's a Stanford University um, experimental medical computer, um, and it was a national resource as opposed to just a university one. So the nice, cozy little university computers were no more just because people liked using them so much and wanted more. So, Joe, at the um, you have a concluding chapter um, also, and, and I don't want to ask you too much about this because I don't want to take up you know, two or three hours of your time, which we easily could do given the richness of stories and accounts and, and other kinds of um, issues that come up in the book that are all really, really fascinating. But in, I, I feel like I wouldn't be um, responsible if I didn't ask you a little bit about this conclusion. And in particular, um, as a way to 
pull out and maybe conclude before we um, wrap up on some of the threads that have come up over the course of our conversation that relate then to now, that talk about this link mm -hmm. between the story that you're telling us about right. sort of mid-century America and our contemporary context right now. Yeah. So we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the legacies of um, sort of expert systems, of computers like Link, um, of other kinds of, you know, more contemporary resonances that this story um, leads up to. What are some of the other um, kind of legacies of this story? Like, yeah. where does this go after after the 1960s? Yeah, one thing that's very tempting is to say, well, you know, we have very different kinds of computers now, and certainly society has changed a lot since the 1950s and in the 1960s. I mean, it no longer looks like Mad Men or something like that. It's a very different world. But if you look carefully at where the modern you know, computers that we're using um, came from and the institutions that use them, they do have roots in this earlier story. Um, the very presence of computers in the laboratory or as part of people's agendas comes from this pioneering work done in the 1940s and the 1950s and even the early 60s. Um, meanwhile, the computers themselves, the, the, you know, we were typically use personal computers, even for things like genomics research. Well, those personal computers didn't grow on trees, that they had to be made. They were not some inevitable development necessarily of just chips getting smaller and cheaper, that someone had to create demand for something like a personal computer. And the earliest people to do that were these biologists. They had this demand, and groups like Xerox and later Apple and Microsoft did a wonderful job of universalizing demand. And then the final piece of the puzzle is the people, that a lot of the leaders that are in charge of the operations that we have now that involve heavy use of computers, they trained back in the 60s and the 70s on these older machines, and it really helped inform the way they view the research they do, the kind of problems that they have, and then their whole take on how one could use this technology, how one could harness it, um, and how they are going to move forward um, with this work. Well, thank you, Joe. And Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I think there's um, there's a lot about the book that we didn't have a chance to get to, but I will say, and I want to highlight this for listeners, just as um, at various points in the book you show the different ways that the pioneers um, of this field and of this, um, this perhaps technology that um, traversed different fields really had very transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary methods of work and of thinking. This book itself also stands, I think, as a model of a kind of very deep, very grounded, but very transdisciplinary scholarship that lets us see parts of history that shaped so many aspects of the way we live and know and um, work today, but that otherwise, without this kind of really impressive and really rigorous transdisciplinary exploration, remain um, invisible. So congratulations. It's well, an amazing you. achievement. Well, um, what, what, one thing I'd just like to throw into that would be my acknowledgement section is somewhat long because I had to draw from so many different disciplines um, to get this work done. And that meant um, tapping into the expertise, not only of people that are computer scientists, but also biologists, chemists, and uh, archivists, too, because these collections are all new and some of them aren't very formal. So I owe a lot of people a lot of favors for having produced this work. So is there anything um, in particular about the book, Joe, that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Oh, well, I thought this was just a wonderful conversation. And the thing that I had been emphasizing before, I guess, bears repeating, um, that there are deep connections between these computers that may seem pretty alien to us, given the size and the uh, difficulty of using them, um, between those early computers and what we've got today. And that the process of getting from then to now was not one of inevit inevitability but rather a lot of very contingent decisions along the way. And so now that this book is out, and congratulations again um, on the book, what's next for you? What project or projects are you being inspired by right now? Well, 
I'd like to keep working along this vein to look at what happens next. This narrative ends, I think, in 1965, and there's all sorts of things when computing really starts to take off in the 60s and 70s um, that would make for a wonderful story. Uh, towards that end, I'm working on a biography of Robert Ledley, this dentist-turned-operations researcher-turned-computing-expert-turned-inventor of this the CT scan um, that I think will serve as a nice cross-section of, of these developments. Um, I've also been very interested in computer games and would like to tap into some of the parallels between when one simulates a scientific process or an economic one and um, one what goes on when one simulates um, part of the world for um, entertainment value and um, to see what we can mine out of that similarity. And you're actually teaching a pretty groovy class on history and gaming as well, right? Oh, yeah, that's been a lot of fun, and I'm just getting the final papers in now. Um, I just got one on the use of Chinese idioms um, in a um, Chinese game that's related to um, history of, I guess, 13th or 14th century China. So students are thinking um, along some pretty advanced lines. They're bringing great ideas, um, that are including some very advanced historiographic concepts to the table that they're getting from these games. And that course was all about harnessing what these students knew and getting them to recognize this stuff as they continue to play these games. That's fabulous. And maybe one of them will write a story down the road on the ways that history and gaming mutually transformed each other in this early 20th century. Yeah. Give it 50 years and we'll have it. (laughs) Well, Joe, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. And thank you so much for making the time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.